Hello, and welcome to episode 37 of Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. I'm your host, Trey Whetstone, coming here from Columbus, Ohio. And on today's episode, I'm kind of continuing the theme of jumping all over the place. This episode is going to focus on the rise of some of the horror distributors and labels that came up in the aughts and the 2010s and really created a new sense of availability for horror and really drove it through the tough times with a lot of direct video stuff or whether that's VOD or putting stuff out in theaters. These are the companies that I want to focus on that were putting out a lot of good horror during this time. Now, I'm going to be focusing on five different companies, and some of them are film distributors, some of them are home video labels. The lines kind of get blurred, and they kind of got blurred in the 90s when we started to have, you know, direct-to-video stuff. And then I feel like that gained even more ground when we had direct-to-video stuff in the aughts, where... A lot of this stuff from overseas, it would land first on direct-to-video, and it wasn't necessarily of poor quality, it's just something that wasn't playing in theaters at the time. And this all kind of was a predecessor to streaming and how we know it today. I mean, now we kind of look down, if something comes direct-to-video now, it's kind of looked down upon, but, you know, it's much more like straight-to-VOD, and that's been predominantly what took over. So, in just a little bit of housekeeping here at the top, this is not going to cover every single indie horror film that came out in this time period. There's definitely stuff that was picked up by bigger labels. If you think of something like Trick or Treat, that was coming through Warner Brothers eventually. And things like Leslie Vernon and May and other films like that were coming through other labels as well, but... Let's go ahead and start with giving a little background into IFC. So IFC actually started as a channel, and it debuted on September 1st of 1994, and it was under the ownership of Rainbow Media. Now, why is Rainbow Media an important name? Well, because that is what we know today as AMC Networks. So IFC started under Rainbow Media and would continue to be a subsidiary of AMC Networks going forward as that kind of transition occurred. IFC started as a spinoff of Bravo, which was a sister channel at the time, and IFC was going to focus on a wider variety of programming, including shows that were related to the fine arts. So, yeah, I think that's the what most of us would recognize them as today as like they were they were definitely there on TV getting the more independent and artsy films on there. But that wasn't enough for IFC to just be a provider of, you know, movies and shows on TV. They created their own film company, IFC Productions, that started in March of 97. They were setting out to produce their own feature film projects. Then on January 18th of 99, IFC officially launched Agenda 2000. Now, this would go on to kind of outline their film projects that they planned to premiere on IFC, the TV channel. As far as the film label goes, it actually had a bit of a predecessor to IFC Films, and that was Next Wave Films. 
Next Wave was set up to release movies, and they operated from 97 through 2002. And when that company ended up shutting down, they were brought into IFC. In 2002, IFC was in a pretty different place. They would make the films and then had a deal with MGM Home Entertainment to release its theatrical films to video. And then by 2006, they had a new deal that was signed by Rainbow Media, their parent company, to have all of their original TV shows and movies released through Genius Products. And you'll find as we go down through this brief summary is that they changed, you know, labels a lot. By the mid-2000s, we were getting into the advent of video on demand, and IFC was at the front of this. They launched IFC First Take, which combined a limited theatrical run with video on demand that was available day and date with theaters. Now, these films that they were doing under this First Take project would debut at their very own IFC Center, which they owned, as well as other theaters like Landmark. That same year, they started getting into iTunes and releasing movies on there. So you can see they're kind of getting into anything. I think they even got into Blockbuster's Media Link at one point. So IFC was kind of ahead of the game and were pushing into various different directions to figure out what worked. In 2008, IFC launched IFC Festival Direct. This was basically a video-on-demand VOD distribution network that would have films on it without slated like theater dates. So it didn't have any release date in the United States. You could go on IFC Festival Direct and watch these things on demand. And then in 2010, it announced... IFC Midnight, which is its new division, that would focus on horror, sci-fi, thrillers, erotic films, and action films. So this is what we know today and how this is pretty much how most of their horror films release or their genre offerings release now. Prior to that, they were all just under IFC. And you'll see a little bit of how that takes place as I go through their list of releases. Backing up a little bit, in 2009, they signed a new home video deal with both MPI Media Group and the Criterion Collection. And this is why we, I mean, that partnership just makes sense, IFC and Criterion, but that was their current deal at the time. Now, their next deal, their next stepping stone was in 2015, when they signed up with Scream Factory to release their IFC Midnight label. And this was the prevailing way that they released these movies up until recently, was Scream Factory would put out a lot of IFC films. So they've never really had their own distribution channel. They put out the films, and then they rely on others to bring them to home media. Now that's for IFC Midnight, but also in 2015, they made a deal with Paramount Home Media Distribution to release all of their films from the IFC Films label. And then this is where it kind of gets interesting and where I think we're seeing this today take place and where they're at currently, is in 2018, and a lot of people I think know this, a lot of horror fans know this, 
AMC Networks ended up acquiring RLJ Entertainment. And going forward, I mean, this would be who distributed most of Shudder's films on home video. Now, whether those are great releases, yeah, I can't, I can't say that they are. But at least we're getting physical media for those ones. But that caused RLJE to be IFC Films' new sister company. And it took over the home distribution of their movies in December of 2021. So anything past that date, it's no longer Scream Factory putting these things out. It is RLJE. And that's basically all that we have to go on. That's a little bit of a a winding path of the film label itself. I didn't want to go in-depth into the channel or anything, which I feel I don't have traditional cable. I feel like IFC's IFC's still out there, and every now and then if I'm searching through channels, it's got some good stuff on there, but cable TV is becoming more and more irrelevant. Whether that's good or bad, I'm not going to comment on, but now I want to kind of transition, and I what I want to do here is just give like a brief recap of some things they, some notable movies they had coming out each year. They honestly had a ton of movies, but I really just want to give the highlights and then what some of my favorite or I think that are pretty important movies to them were. So one highlight in 2008 on October 29th, they released Home Movie, which I haven't seen, but it is a found footage movie. And I believe, as far as I could tell, that's their first kind of notable horror movie. And really, that's the only one I have down for 2008. So when we move into 2009, I think some big points and some major horror movies, and two that I absolutely love, are Pontypool and Dead Snow. And I think Pontypool and Dead Snow are probably among my favorites of the entire aughts. So those definitely, I mean, IFC gets some credit for sure for taking those two in. I think the interesting thing with those are, like, those aren't necessarily films that I think fall under what you think is a traditional art house film. But either way, I think they're both great, and a lot of horror fans know and love those, so I think those are important. They also released on October 21st um, Lars von Trier's Antichrist. I haven't watched that. I don't really have an inkling to watch that, but I know that's a big one. In 2010, they released their very first IFC Midnight movie, and that was The Human Centipede on April 28th. So that's the very first one under the IFC Midnight label, and The Human Centipede, they would release the entire trilogy. I think that's an important movie at the time. I remember being in college and a lot of people watching that one and thinking it was really cool and everything like that. I haven't seen it. I probably wouldn't get into it, but it's definitely a landmark one for sure. As we get into 2011, we start to see their biggest strength, I think, early on. And I think this was, I mean, they're digging out gems, I think or at least interesting films from other countries and releasing them here in the U.S. I mean, this is before VOD was such a huge thing. So really, this is the way we're getting these movies. Well, VOD or not, it doesn't matter how you release it, home video, DVD, anything else. 
they are still bringing in some big international films. I know Dream Home from Hong Kong is one that Jay of the Dead likes. Uh, we also have We Are What We Are, which is a Mexican film. Um, you had The Silent House, which was the movie Silent House was based on. So you have something like Tesuo the Bullet Man. Earlier again, you had The Human Centipede. So they're just doing a lot. They have a lot of output from other countries. There's uh, Later this year, one of my highlights is Julia's Eyes, which comes from Spain. And then you also have Scent from, I believe, the Netherlands. Anything else? Stakeland is the big highlight for me, I think, that and Julia's Eyes. Um, Stakeland is a game changer for me, and... We're getting to the territory where a lot of these movies I heard reviewed on horror movie podcasts. So it was from that time period. You've got all these movies that I feel like we didn't have the volume of movies released as we do today. So you had to kind of dig back. I think when HMP started, they were still digging back into 2012 and 2011 films. And it seems like IFC was a big part of that. Okay, so for 2012, it was a bit of a smaller year for them. Um, I think Kill List by Ben Wheatley is the only thing that I've seen on here. That was released on February 3rd. And then ATM on April 6th. And ATM is one I hear talked about. I haven't seen it, but it's one I'm definitely interested in. Um, I know a lot of people like that, but that was pretty much it as far as highlights, I think, for 2012. In 2013, they did, let's see, Would You Rather, this is a string of movies that I haven't seen, but um, Would You Rather, Antiviral, um, Grabbers, Devil's Pass, I feel like those are all contracted as well later in the year. I feel like those are all pretty big highlights, but I haven't seen any of those yet. I have seen Barbarian Sound Studio, which I'm not a huge fan of, but I know people love Um, This year, you've got the Maniac remake. You've got Byzantium, which is the Neil Jordan film. You've got Haunter, which I think is... That is my highlight of the year, is Haunter. I think that's a really good one and was getting a lot of buzz at the time. 2013 seems like a pretty solid year as far as their releases. There's not a lot of filler, but there's a lot of decent, solid stuff. Now, again, I haven't seen a lot of this. I know people love Maniac, If I have to look at this, I would say probably most people's biggest takeaway from this year, Barbarian Sound Studio and Maniac. But for me, it's Haunter. Oh, and you also have um, Dracula 3D from Argento, which is certainly something. 2014, looking down the list, there's a movie called The Den, which I haven't seen. That is found footage. That's something I definitely want to get into, but I haven't yet. Um, I would say... The biggest one for me, and this might cause some people to get angry with me, but uh, my favorite is Witching and Bitching from this year by Alex de la Iglesia. I think that is a superb film. It's one of his best. Um, Anyone who's listening to me knows that I do love that director. Now, the correct answer would be, for most people, the movie that came out on November 28th, and that is The Babadook. I think The Babadook is a huge part of IFC's I think it's a huge part of their horror cred. 
because really that is probably the biggest profile release on this entire list so far. I mean, and I got into, and we can talk non-horror for a minute because I got into IFC really things like, you know, my parents loved my big fat Greek wedding. I know that was like an awards contender. And then they did something like Metallica, some kind of monster, you know, other music documentaries, and they did documentaries like Lost in La Mancha. But this is where they're starting. I think this is their biggest profile horror release. I think it's a huge one. And I know a lot of people love The Babadook. I think some would consider it one of the best films of the 2010s. And I would too, really. For me, it's probably like a top 25 as opposed to a top 10 of the 2010s. I can't remember where I put that on my best of the 2010s list. That list might be irrelevant now. I I don't know. I, seeing this list, I think the biggest thing for me is I've got a lot of work to do because there are so many of these movies that I have on my list to watch and I just haven't got to yet. I think a lot of times these movies get ignored because we want to go and we want to catch up on the newest stuff. We want to watch the 80s films, the 70s films, even the 90s stuff. I've been watching a lot of 90s stuff for those episodes, but I think these get ignored a lot of the time, and I need to start probably getting in a habit of watching these, but that was 2014. I think it's a pretty... I don't know if I'd say it's a decent year. I think they put out a lot of stuff, but the biggest things for sure... To me, it's the Babadook, hands down, was the biggest, but my favorite, Witching and Bitching. Okay, moving over to 2015. Taking a look here. I think my favorite thing on this list is The Hollow that came out on November 5th, so another late-in-the-year release. I don't think The Hollow gets talked about enough. I feel like that one's kind of gone. It was big at the time, for sure, and I remember people really talking about that one, but you gotta think something like that. I feel like like a lot of these movies in the 2010s have gotten pushed under now. They're not the new hot thing anymore. But yeah, The Hollow is a very strong movie, and that came out that year. Anything else of note, I think, like Backcountry and Wormwood. Um, I haven't seen either, but I know those are, are big ones. You've got a film from Chile, The Stranger, which I haven't heard of, but I'm definitely going to look into that one. In 2016, we have the Cabin Fever remake, which I haven't seen. I don't really have much of an inclination to see. But they put out a lot of movies this year. If I'm looking at my highlights, I mean, Baskin was an interesting film. I wouldn't say it's it's great, but it definitely is pretty cool. I liked Shelley a lot. I think that one's from Denmark. Then you've got, uh, my favorite of this year would be I Am Not a Serial Killer, I'd say. That's by far the best one on this list, in my opinion. I know a lot of people would probably argue, you know, on December 21st, we got the autopsy of Jane Doe. A lot of people like that one. I think it's pretty good, too, but I don't think it's anywhere near I Am Not a Serial Killer. I really enjoyed that one. 2017 is a weird year because I remember all of these coming out. And you've got, and this is definitely highlighting their Criterion partnership with um, Personal Shopper on March 10th. I love Personal Shopper, but I still wouldn't even say, man, this is a good, I feel like this is a pretty solid year. You've got The Devil's Candy, which is going to get my pick for my favorite of this year. 
But wow, Devil's Candy and Personal Shopper are two very strong ones. And then you have Killing Ground, which I also loved from this year, and A Dark Song, which is really good. So not as much as like quantity-wise, but there's definitely a good quality here. I mean, I would these are definitely ones that I actually remember watching day and date. And yeah, those are those were some big ones for me. So this was a good year for IFC. 2018, we have a Vietnamese film with The Housemaid. I haven't watched that one. If I'm going with something that I love, oh man, this is, yeah, this is a pretty solid year too. My favorite from this one is going to be The Clove Hitch Killer, which released on November 16th. I also loved Pie Wacket, which came out in March. And then to a lesser extent, I liked Wildling and What Keeps You Alive as well. Devil's Doorway came out this year, so those are all solid picks. I know other people love The Cured and Ghost Stories and The House That Jack Built. I don't think any of those are foundation-shaking, but I think people do enjoy those ones. I don't necessarily like those but to the extent of others, but... You know, that's still a pretty decent year. I I would say we're getting into territory where they're hitting their stride and they're getting into some good stuff. Now, that's kind of derailed in 2019 for me anyway, because I only see four movies here. I watched one of these, exactly one of these, and that was The Wind. I'm not a huge fan of The Wind, but I know people did like that. Uh, you've got Depraved, which I haven't seen yet, and I do want to see. I believe that's the Frankenstein movie, but uh, not a big year in 2019. 2020, I think they put out some solid stuff. Now, I think I'm going to differ on other people from what they put out as far as like what's my favorite, but my favorite would be Sputnik from August 14th. Yeah, I'd say that's that's by far my favorite, but I also loved Rent-A-Pow, which came out in September. Um, now, if we're talking big picture, I think people loved... Well, I know people loved Relic, and I know people loved Hunter Hunter. I thought both of those were solid films, but my biggest takeaway from this one is Sputnik. I think that is a great sci-fi horror film um, from Russia. It's definitely one of the best of that year. 2021, I'm looking down this list. This is an interesting one. I don't think this one's great, or at least from what I've seen. I'm going to say The Night, which came out in January, is my favorite from the year. I also liked The Beta Test. Now, I haven't seen Benedetta, and I haven't seen We Need to Do Something. I've heard those, you know, touted. Uh, Werewolves Within as well. But I guess Come True was pretty decent. That one came out in March of this year. But yeah, the other ones kind of fell off for me. The Vigil, I think, was one maybe people liked more than I did. But pretty pretty lackluster slate compared to the last several years. Um, then we get up to 2022. We're almost caught up. Hatching and The Innocents are my favorite from this year. Uh, they put out a lot of my favorites from 2022. Looking at this list, I'm seeing Hatching, I'm seeing The Innocence, I'm seeing Watcher. 
And if you've listened to this show, you know those were all in my top 10 from this past year. Uh, C for Me was one that I thought was pretty decent. Uh, she Will was one I thought was pretty good, and Resurrection as well. So that's pretty good for me. I think, you know, The Innocence was in my, I think that was my second favorite of the year. So they did pretty well with me in 2022. And we get to current day. They've put out um, Skidamarink, and which is very divisive. And then Consecration, which I haven't seen. That is the latest Christopher Smith film. But that's where I'm up to at time of, you know, when I made this list. So I'd say to sum this all up, they did a good job of digging out some of the best international movies of this time period. And you got to think, IFC's been in the game for a long time compared to some of these other companies that I'm going to cover. I mean, 2008, they started putting out horror movies. And I think they did a really good job of curating the best that they could, the best international, the best in the U.S. And I think the U.S. offerings got stronger, obviously, the longer we got into, you know, the 2010s. But there's a lot of good, solid stuff on here. So, and if you're listening to this, if you're, uh, if I've gone down through these movies, let me know what are some of your favorite IFC films and your favorite with these other companies as well as we go through. But that's going to wrap it up for IFC films. Okay, so next up, I'm going to be talking about Magnolia Films or Magnet releasing. Magnet is typically what the genre titles are released under, um, starting in 2008. Now, I unfortunately do not have a ton of background on Magnolia or Magnet. I do know that it is a subsidiary company of 2929 Entertainment, which is owned by um, Todd Wagner and Mark Cuban. The only other real piece of information, you know, was founded in 2001, and then Cuban had put it up for sale in 2011, but it looks like there was never a buyer. So, Magnolia specializes in independent and foreign releases, like a lot of these other companies do, maybe not A24 or something like that, but you can definitely see when we're going to go through some of the highlights here is Magnolia peaked at some point, and today it's not not necessarily terrible, but the output has definitely went down. Okay, so as far as I can tell, Magnet's first genre offering was on February 15th of 2002, and that was the movie Wendigo. I haven't watched that movie, so I don't really know anything about it, but that was their very first one. After that, it was a sparse couple of years. In 2005, they released Pulse, which is the Kiyoshi Kurosawa film from Japan, which is pretty good. And then they released, in 2007, a pretty good lineup. I mean, you had The Host from South Korea. You have Severance, which is the Christopher Smith film. You have Murder Party, which I've heard good things about but haven't seen. And then you have Wreck on November 23rd to end out that year. So a couple of, I would say, classic international horror releases. Now in 2008, they did switch over to Magnet Releasing. And I'm looking now, the big one for me is Let the Right One In. Time Crimes was also out at the end of that year. And they put out Splinter as well in that year. 
2009, they released another big one, and that's The House of the Devil, and they released that on October 30th. I love when movies are released almost right on Halloween or right around Halloween. I remember seeing House of the Devil the first time on TV, I think. I saw it late night on MTV because I wasn't completely following the uh, horror scene at that time. I know I saw Let the Right One In close to its U.S. release, but... Yeah, House of the Devil is a huge one. Let the Right One In is a huge one. I mean, those are two of my, probably at least in the top 50, if not higher, horror movies of all time. I would say maybe in the top 25. Um, And then something like Wreck, I absolutely love, and The Host. I mean, they put out some of my absolute favorite international releases. In 2010, speaking of, they put out Wreck 2, And they also put out Survival of the Dead, unfortunately. And then they put out Monsters. And Monsters is a really good one. I don't know if it's completely horror, but it definitely deals with giant monsters. And you know that I love giant monsters. That is a great film in my estimation, at least. If we switch the calendar over to 2011, we've got even more bangers coming out here. You've got Troll Hunter and Tucker and Dale vs. Evil. So you see what kind of a a path they were on a trajectory. I mean, they're putting out some of the biggest horror movies around this time. I would say even more so than IFC in a lot of cases. They also put out Black Death and Rubber, which I haven't seen. Then The Last Circus, which is an Alex de la Iglesia film. And again, you all know that I love Alex de la Iglesia, so that's a wild one. You go to 2012, they put out another Wreck movie, Wreck 3, and then we had The Innkeepers by Ty West, which I absolutely love, and VHS as well came out in October of that year, so that was a big one. I'm not a huge fan of VHS, but I know a lot of people are. Um, I think it's okay, but that is no doubt a, an important film that released in the industry. Over to 2013, and it gets a little more sparse. I really liked the movie Here Comes the Devil. It's a pretty disturbing Mexican film that came out the end of that year. You got John Dies at the end, the ABCs of Death, VHS 2. So you've got some very, um, I think you got a wide variety of stuff. You've got that vampire movie Kiss of the Damned. I mean, there's a whole wide variety, but... Nothing here really matches the previous years when we've had at least one horror classic, I think, coming out. Unfortunately, that would continue into 2014, and we see a lot of sequels. They did put out Ty West's The Sacrament. I I like The Sacrament a lot, but I don't think it lives up to his other two films that he had done previously. And then you've got, you know, a sequel to ABCs of Death, you've got a sequel to VHS... Another sequel to VHS. I mean, they already put out VHS 2. And then you have the musical Stage Fright, which is not a remake or associated in any way with the Alfred Hitchcock movie, but I do like Stage Fright. Uh, 2015, their loan release was Wreck 4, so another sequel to Wreck. They did get all of those movies. Moving into 2016, they have The Eyes of My Mother, which I think is a solid little film. Uh, 2017, they came out with XX, which is... I think a little underrated. I liked, you know, most of the stories in that anthology movie. Not necessarily gimmick, but the promotion behind that one was it was all female directors. And 
I thought a lot of them did a really good job. So XX, I think, is one that unfairly gets kind of stomped on or gets crap, but I liked it. 2018, we have Marrowbone, which is a fine movie. Um, I liked Marrowbone. I can't remember a whole lot about it now. But you see things are kind of drying up. And, yeah, it'd be a couple years before they had another hit. Because in 2019, we've got Body at Brighton Rock, which I have never seen. And then Wrinkles the Clown, which is a documentary that I do want to see. But I haven't got to that yet. Certainly an interesting choice for a movie. But... Not one that I think people remember or is a top movie either. 2020 was such a weird year, and I think they put out a couple of at least interesting films. I'd say for me, I liked all three of these, but I still think they're like, you know, in that 7 range, 6.5, 7 range. And that would be Amulet, Alone, which I think is the best of the three. Alone, I'd probably give a 7.5. If you haven't seen Alone... Alone's pretty solid. It was directed by uh, John Hyams, who is the son of Peter Hyams, and John recently did Sick from 2023. I think Alone is better in a lot of ways than Sick, but they're very different movies. He had 12 Hour Shift as well that starred Angela Bettis, and yeah, again, those were solid films. 2020 was a weird year, so I think we got a lot of those caliber of films, but it was decent. Now, in 2021, I think they regained a little bit of their swagger back when they released Censor on June 11th, and Censor was one of my absolute favorite films from 2021, and I I really hope, because as we turn to 2022, they put out You Are Not My Mother and Piggy, and I absolutely love Piggy as well, and it just seems like they're maybe focusing more on that international feel again the last couple of years. And I really hope they get back to that because there's so much good international stuff out there. And these guys are really in the forefront of bringing stuff from a lot of different countries to the U.S. in the, you know, the aughts and the early 2010s. And I think they were bringing some of the best of the best from international markets. So I really hope they can get back to that again. It's definitely been some trying times for them. I mean, they've really only released a few releases a year since 2015. Their heyday definitely ended probably in 2014 as far as number of releases or quality of re- or by quality of releases as well. So Magnet, not exactly on the rise, but maybe they are. Maybe they're back to um, getting some of these top titles. They've certainly put out two of my... Uh, Two films that have been in my top tens the past two years, and they're both international titles. So, hoping for the best for Magnet. Okay, so this next one is the last of those. You know, the the first two that I touched on both started in the aughts, and this is the last of those earlier on companies. You know, these started right at the end, or right at the, um, I mean, this is an older company. I'm going to get into it in the history a little bit, but it kind of refocused and came into shape of what it was, in the early 2010s. So, I'm talking about RLJE. And RLJE Films has a pretty storied history because it started out as something else and was something else for the majority of its time as a company. So in 1991, a company called Image Entertainment was formed and they set out to 
release movies on Laserdisc. Now at the time, Laserdisc was just kind of burgeoning, and VHS and Betamax were still the most popular formats, but Image was able to put together deals with studios like Universal, 20th Century, Orion, and Disney. So, I mean, they had a lot of the major studios on board, and Laserdisc was offering a quality of the time that VHS couldn't. This next fact is interesting because I never knew this was a thing, but apparently in 1994, Image started releasing movies on CD-ROM. So, and this is, it says specifically the CD-ROM format and not DVD. So I'm thinking, like, I, I don't know. I never knew there were movies releasing on CD-ROM. So I guess you would play those on your computer, I'm assuming, but that's news to me. Uh, but of course, as the we get later in the 90s, Laserdiscs are kind of going the way of the Dodo, and we've got DVDs coming in as the dominant format, and they would be for a long time. So as this change becomes, Image is not necessarily at the top of their game anymore, and they're trying to bring... Uh, smaller, more, you know, special interest-based programming from a lot of different distributors, including Playboy Home Entertainment, and uh, anyone that knows, it's no secret to say wherever the porn industry is going, that's probably the leading, the next, it's on the bleeding edge, you know. If that's going towards VR, then that's going to be the bleeding edge if that's going towards, you know, DVD or Blu-ray. The porn industry will ultimately usually indicate where the where the home media business is going, which is weird, but it's true, at least historically. In 2005, Image signed a deal with, so this is, again, trying to get into everything they can, signed a uh, deal with Bandai to distribute some anime. But unfortunately, this ended just a couple years later when uh, Genion took over distributing for Bandai. Image did have a partnership with the Criterion Collection and had a pretty good foothold on the, you know, independent entertainment market. They were putting out a lot of uh, niche stuff, of course, but they were kind of getting back on their feet. In 2010, they signed up with Sony Pictures to release a lot of their DVDs and Blu-rays. Unfortunately, yet again, this would be ended just a couple years later when Mill Creek Entertainment took over. And if you want to know the reason why we don't have good releases for the Heisei era and Millennium era Godzilla films, it is Mill Creek Entertainment. It is the reason those were stranded on, you know, now they're out of print, of course, but it's that, it's the Gamera movies before Arrow took over those. Mill Creek... Not great. I mean, yes, they were putting out some sets before, but that Gamera Mill Creek set was garbage. So I'm so glad that Arrow was able to do that, but those Godzilla sets aren't much better. There's no consistency towards any of them. I mean, some have dubs and some have subtitles. There's no rhyme or reason to which ones have which. So the next deal that they made was actually a year before in 2011 when they signed up with Lakeshore Entertainment who had access to a lot of the old New World Pictures movies. But on April 2nd of 2012, RLJ Acquisition 
which is owned by Robert L. Johnson, who is the founder of the BET channel. Well, they announced that they were going to acquire or merge with Image Entertainment and run it under the banner of RLJ Entertainment. And they also picked up along the way in 2014 Acorn Media UK, who owns, according to this, they own 64% in Agatha Christie Limited. So that was probably the main driving factor behind that. So now we've got an, an established RLJE Entertainment, which includes the old Image Entertainment, who's been around forever. And then, as many people know, at least who would follow this kind of stuff, on July 30th of 2018, AMC Networks acquired RLJ Entertainment and... You know, that was for $59 million, but they bought all of the shares that were not owned by Robert L. Johnson. And the stockholders approved it on October 31st. RLJ was brought in pretty much to, as we know, release a lot of the Shudder films on home media. Now, they do not release all of the Shudder films, and I think it's much more of a situation where... I don't know, I talked about it before, Shudder does not have great home media releases for the most part. But I think a lot of this was to bring ROJ's catalog to Shudder as well. And I can I can highlight, you know, after the acquisition, what kind of films they were bringing to Shudder. You can probably see a little bit of a crossover even before the two companies got together. So there was probably a deal there of some sorts, but... That pretty much wraps up the saga of Image Entertainment and RLJE Entertainment. So we're going to go ahead and go into the releases. So I tried to stick just in our time frame and not go too back into or too deep into Image Entertainment's catalog. Now these first couple of releases were as Image Entertainment before they completely merged under the same banner, but they were a part of RLJE. And that was Lovely Molly and the Tall Man. And I haven't seen the Tall Man still, but Lovely Molly is um, is fine. I'm not a huge fan of it, but those are would be the two you know, most notable, I think. And those came out in 2012 under the Image Entertainment banner. Wouldn't be till 2014 until they started getting into consistently releasing genre films. We had Wolf Creek 2... And the House's October build, I have not seen the Wolf Creek movies, and I do not like the House's October build. But uh, there's a Cabin Fever sequel in there, Patient Zero, and All Cheerleaders Die, which I think is a Lucky McKee film. So that's the kind of... Listen, I don't want to disparage anyone, but that's not top-level quality of entertainment right there. I'm just just saying that that reeks of direct-to-DVD or direct-to-video of this time period. Now, I think they took a big step up in 2015 when they released things like Digging Up the Morrow, and you've got Bone Tomahawk as well, A Christmas Horror Story. I mean, they put out Burying the X, which is a Joe Dante film. I mean, they're starting to get some decent stuff in here. They also released, of note, some kind of hate. Now, I haven't seen this, but this is Adam Egypt Mortimer's first release, and he was the one behind... Daniel isn't real and Arch Enemy. Now, Some Kind of Hate does not have very good reception, but uh, that's okay. It's still very interesting. 
So nothing for them in 2016. And then in 2017, we had Mayhem. And you'll notice that that one was a pretty much a Shutter exclusive. So there's already some kind of deal going on there where they're working together. Yet they also put out a couple of sequels, Houses October Built 2 and another Wolf Cop. Uh, but Mayhem, was, I think, is the big one of that year. And then in 2018, they had Puppet Master, The Littlest Reich, and Mandy. So I know Mandy is a huge hit, and a lot of people like that one, and that was also a big thing for Shudder. You'll remember in 2018, when I was just going over the history, they didn't approve the sale or the acquisition until October. So there was some kind of deal in place before then, to get these two companies to work together. But I think as I'm going through this, you'll notice that you've probably seen a lot of these movies at your local Dollar Tree. And I think that's where a lot of them end up. So this is why you don't necessarily see all Shutter films there. I think it's mainly the RLJE films that end up trickling down to the Dollar Tree. But uh, 2019, they put out some interesting films. I wouldn't say they put out any great films. Uh, but they did Satanic Panic and Gwen and Trick, which I think are all fine. I think Satanic Panic is the favorite of those for me, but that's not even that that high on my list. But not necessarily a standout movie that year. In 2020, they did put out Color Out of Space. So that was a big one. They also had VFW, which I know a lot of people like. Uh, the Dark and the Wicked, which was a big one from that year. And then they put out some stuff like Spree and The Pale Door. The Owners is one that I thought was decent. Nothing nothing really great. Uh, Super Deep, Castle Freak. So you see, it's a lot of those, not necessarily all Shudder movies, but a lot of those movies that were coming to Shudder. And I have seen several of these movies at the Dollar Tree. So that backs up my story, I guess. In 2021, they put out Psycho Gorman. They put out The Reckoning which is a Neil Marshall film, which I probably like more than most people, but the ones that I really liked from that year were Sun and Seance, which they put out, and they did another Nick Cage vehicle here with Prisoners of the Ghostland, which I still haven't seen, but all in all, I think that was a pretty solid year. Nothing spectacular, but a lot of good solid movies, and then 2022 is just a crapshoot with what they put out. I mean... You'll notice that all of these movies came to Shudder. I'm looking down the list, and I think The Cellar is the one I liked the most. I mean, they put out things like Christmas, Bloody Christmas, and oh, I guess Nasebo might be the one that I like the most, actually. But the other Neil Marshall film, The Lair, The Apology, Allegoria, The Reef, Stocked, uh, The Twin, Off Season, Slashback. So a lot of ones that you'll be familiar with, but not necessarily good films, I guess. They did another Lucky McKee film with Old Man. So I think that's the state of RLJE. They're putting out a lot of Shutter stuff. In my opinion, they are a tier below what Magnet and IFC used to be. Now, I don't know how great IFC and Magnet are in a state right now, but... You know, they still put out some decent movies every year, I feel like. But So that is RLJE's, at least the majority of their catalog that I've went through with their genre films. Again, I didn't get much into image entertainment because I wanted to focus on this time period specifically. 
but you can't undersell. You know, they are part of Shutter now. Speaking of, you know, big deals or something that's huge that came around in this time period is Shutter. And I don't know the fate of Shutter. The future of Shutter is kind of up in the air. We don't know what's going to happen with Shutter. We don't know how that's going to hold up. But honestly, Shutter has been such a great boon for the horror community to have their own streaming channel. You know, if it switches to AMC, maybe at least we get we still get our films. I think you're going to see less and less. I mean, you'll see RLG put out a lot of Shutter originals last year. A ton of them, honestly. But I feel like Shudder still has a lot of deals with other distributors. You know, you'll see IFC stuff on there. I think a lot of IFC stuff you're seeing in there because of their partnership with RLJE. And yeah, I just hope this is to put this out there. I'm just hoping that Shudder can stay afloat and stay what it is because it's a good value and it's a great place for horror fans to go. I might not be checking in as much lately. You know, the releases may be hit or miss with them, but they're still going to put out a lot of good content for horror fans. Okay, next up is the moment you've all been waiting for, one of the most prominent releasers of independent content or, you know, smaller scale content for sure. This definitely isn't a major (laughs) film studio, but that is A24. And I would, the last couple we're talking about are strictly in the home entertainment business, I would say A24 is much more like IFC, where they're doing their own stuff. Um, They're doing their own productions and releasing and distributing. So, I mean, they do have a little bit of that home media, but they obviously are partnering with other companies to get that stuff out. Now, A24 is the most prestige, I feel like, of any of these, and that's saying something that you have IFC here because they were the kind of the originators of this, the progenitors of this. But A24, they haven't made a lot of genre buzz as far as like horror genre buzz within the awards. But, I mean, they've they've received 49 Academy Award nominations and have won 16 overall, including, you know, everything everywhere all at once recently winning Best Picture and doing a lot of damage last year in the awards, which is great to see. But I don't think their horror films have really got that kind of attention yet. Nonetheless, they're probably putting out the horror movies that would be most, um, I would say, probably most likely to win any kind of awards. And and maybe not. Maybe we'll see something else emerge. But I feel like you all know what you're getting with A24. So, as far as when they started, they were founded on August 20th. That's a great day. That's a great day. Some great people were born on August 20th. But moving on, August 20th, 2012, by uh, Daniel Katz, David Fenkel, and John Hodges. And these were some, you know, film industry veterans. They at least had some experience in there. But uh, the name A24 was inspired by the Italian A24 motorway. So Katz was driving on this when he decided to found the company. And coincidentally, the motorway was also known in Italy in Italian film history as the setting of a lot of small, like, landscapes and stuff that were used in the surrealist and kind of neorealist films. So I have always wondered that as well, because that name is just kind of out there. Like, you know, IFC, it's the independent film company. 
you know, Magnet releasing or Magnolia, those are existing things. RLJEs are just initials. So A24 is definitely one that's that's interesting, and I'm I didn't know that story before looking it up, so that's pretty cool. They started distributing films in 2013 and got in with a couple of the Coppolas here. So the, their very first film that they did a limited release in theaters was A Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III, and that was uh, by Roman Coppola, and they also did The Bling Ring in that year by Sofia Coppola. They also put out like Spring Breakers and um, some other films along that line in 2013. Also in 2013, they signed a deal with DirecTV Cinema to do kind of day-and-date releases with their theatrical release. They also put together a deal with Amazon Prime to release their films on the service once the you know DVD and Blu-rays were out. So A24 is put together. They wouldn't put together their first horror film until this point in 2014. In May 2015, they actually started or announced that they were going to start a TV division. Now, I'm not familiar really with any of their TV that I've looked at here, but yeah, it seems like they're getting into a lot of different lines of business, which I think is always smart. You know, you sign a deal with DirecTV, you're putting stuff out in theaters, and you're also putting them on Amazon Prime once they come out. Oh, and you're also doing home media. So they're kind of trying to touch, and TV as well. So they're just getting their fingers in a lot of different aspects of the film industry. I think that's important to diversify your company like that. In January of 2016, they brought on Sasha Lloyd to deal with the international film and TV market. And their first foray into this was releasing Swiss Army Man in all foreign territories. So again, they're doing a lot of different stuff here. And then another benchmark here was in January 2017 when they acquired the rights to their first international or their foreign language film, and that is Menashe. And I've never heard of that, but it is a Yiddish language film. So they're really, again, getting into a little bit of everything. And then in more, because a lot of the history around this company that we know of are a lot of business deals. You know, they did sign a deal with Apple TV Plus to create original programming for that service. And they also put together a deal that started in the end of 2022 with Showtime Networks. So these are films that are excluded from the Apple partnership. And these ones will, you know, from November of 2022 on... The uh, A24 films are going to show up first on Showtime Networks. And the last little piece of business here is actually this year, they bought the distribution rights to, for the first time, to two older films, and that is uh, Darren Aronofsky's Pie and Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense. So they have bought the rights to uh, remastered versions of those. I don't know how they plan to distribute them, but... That's a little interesting note. So, yeah. So that's pretty much what we know about A24. They have a pretty lengthy history, at least in the in different acquisitions and business deals they've been involved in. But A24 has put out a lot of solid stuff. I think, I don't think what people realize is A24 just doesn't, they don't just put out like prestige films though. And I think we'll see that as we get down through here. 
But remember, anytime you think of the lighthouse or Midsommar or, you know, X or <laughs> Men or any of those types of movies, just remember that A24 also put out Slice, the movie about the pizza delivery boy. So anyway, 2014 was the first horror film that they put out. I would call it a horror film. It certainly is unsettling and disturbing to me, and that is Under the Skin. But the same year, they also put out Tusk and Life After Beth. So again, it's not like A24 just puts out these serious, dour movies. I think they put out a lot of a wide variety, and I don't think people realize even what all they put out sometimes. In 2016, they had The Witch, which is again, major success for them. And Green Room as well. And those are two very lauded films on horror movies. I love both of them as well. But they also that year put out The Monster, which I don't think a lot of people are kind to. I like The Monster. I think it's pretty solid, but maybe that's just me. Uh, they also put out Krisha that year, which I don't think I've seen Krisha, but I think Jay of the Dead likes to talk about that one. 2017, they just kept on going with The Black Coat's Daughter and It Comes at Night, which are two very much, again, like acclaimed films throughout the horror community, and I liked both of those as well. And they also put out Killing of a Sacred Deer. Yeah, I, I hate The Killing of a Sacred Deer. It's a terrible movie. Um, if you like it, that's, that's fine, but I absolutely despise that movie. But they did put that one out. 2018, they put out Hereditary and the aforementioned Slice. So, again, two very different ends of the spectrum with those movies. But Hereditary, you can see they're almost putting out a genre classic every year. 2019, they had Midsommar and The Lighthouse. But they also put out uh, Climax, which I haven't seen yet. And The Hole in the Ground and In Fabric, which I think are two decent movies. I don't think they have a ton of misses. I mean, they don't put out a ton every year, but they put out some good films. Now, 2020 is completely blank because, you know, with the state of the world, then A24 makes, usually makes an effort to put their films out in theaters. And if you can't do that, then, I mean, St. Maud was definitely on the slate, but that would never made it out. So they had a release list 2020, which could have been said about several other studios as well. 2021, they finally did put out Saint Maud. They also did False Positive on Hulu, which was fine. It was it was interesting. Um, and Lamb. So 2021 was a very eclectic year for them. But 2022, they put out X and Pearl, of course, by Ty West, his triumphant return, two feature films. And they did Men and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. So I think 2022 is a pretty solid horror year for A24. And a pretty solid year overall. I mean, they had The Whale as well and Everything Everywhere All at Once, which were non-horror films, but both were being recognized by the Academy. So that's really it for the short history of A24. That's all we have, but they are still, I think, in the middle of their dominance. I mean, they are still putting out so many great films. All right, last but not least, definitely the shortest or smallest amount of films of any of these companies I want to talk about, and that is Neon. When 
getting ready to announce the intentions of this company, co-founder Tom Quinn stated that Neon's intent was to release films who have audiences that skew under 45, who have no aversion to violence, no aversion to foreign language, and no aversion to nonfiction. So they have a clear path forward, and you know they've set out what they want to do. In 2019, they actually sold a majority stake to 30 West, which is the media venture that is part of the uh, Friedkin Group. And then the other notable thing I have here is in 2021, Bleecker Street partnered with Neon and they launched the distribution label Decal, which is its own standalone operation that does the distribution deals for you know the home entertainment rights of both Bleecker Street and Neon. That's kind of how they get their films out to the world now. You know, before they were relying on Criterion and Universal and Wellgo to get their stuff distributed before they did the whole deal with Decal. So that's really all I have on Neon. It's it's really short. There's not a ton about the history of Neon because it is a newer company. I mean, you'll see Let's let's go ahead and get into the releases here, but in 2017, they put out Colossal, which is that um, Anne Hathaway starting that, right? It's about the woman who has, like, a connection to a kaiju. Um, I still haven't seen that one, but need to watch it. And they, they also put out The Bad Batch, which, again, I haven't seen. But you can tell how The Bad Batch definitely, in the next year, in 2018, they put out Revenge. You can see how those two definitely fit into their mission statement. 2019, they put out Little Monsters, but they also put out Parasite. Now, I wouldn't say Parasite is a horror movie, but it's definitely a genre film, and I think something horror fans love, and that one has had a lot of accolades. So, yeah, Neon isn't a joke, man. They've put, they put out some stuff. In 2020, they put out The Lodge and Possessor, which I remember seeing both of those in theaters in two very different scenarios or very different climates. It's funny how that, you know, one pre-COVID and one post-COVID, so. But those are some pretty solid films. They also did Bad Hair, which I liked a lot, and that one came to Hulu. Now, in 2021, they did release In the Earth, but only the international distribution of that one. Their other movie from that year was uh, Titan, and, you know, that's a that was a pretty big hit with a lot of the horror community as well. I still haven't caught up with Titan, so I need to need to get on that. And then their most release, their most current releases of the horror genre, back-to-back years, you know, 2022, they did Crimes of the Future, and 2023, Infinity Pool. So, a Cronenberg double feature the last two years, and that's all they put out. That's Neon. I wanted to include Neon on here because they are just starting out, and they've put out a lot of good, solid movies so far. So, I think the future is definitely bright. This is the one where it's hardest to take a look at today because there's so much ahead of them. I feel like the whole history of their company is ahead of them and they've only just begun. But uh, yeah, let me know if you liked this style of episode, if you liked going over these topics. And right now I'm going to head into a watch list roulette review and then we will close out the episode. 
So, believe it or not, I am still working through the horror movies of 1984, as was requested by Greg Bazzelli. And the next movie that came up was one I've had on my list for a while, and that is the slasher movie The Initiation. So this poster was probably what drew me into wanting to watch this one, even though I feel like it's gotten some pretty lukewarm reception to it. But either way, it was on my watch list, so I went ahead and took a look on Tubi. So the movie was directed by Larry Stort. It's from 1984, runs for 97 minutes. And the tagline is, Be young, stay young, and die young. The synopsis reads, An amnesiac sorority member who has been plagued by a recurring nightmare is stalked alongside other co-eds by a killer in a deserted department store where they are completing a hazing ritual. Yeah, this this movie is pretty run-of-the-mill, mediocre slasher, I would say. If we're looking at it, you know, you have the Kelly character who is our lead in this one, and there are some questions about her past, and she starts, you know, she's doing a report on, she's in college, um, she's doing a report on, like, dreams and nightmares, and it's because she has a recurring nightmare. Well... She links up with this grad student, maybe? A guy going for his doctorate? I, I'm i not sure. I can't remember, honestly. But either way, you've got a knockoff Linda Blair playing the Kelly character. So I, I could have sworn it was Linda Blair when this movie started. It's not. You also have um, Clue Gallagher in this from, uh, you know, Return of the Living Dead and he plays a, I want to say it's a small role, but it's also a big role at the same time as far as the overall plot of the movie. And if I want to get my negative out of the way, like I, the the kills are very uninspired. There are a lot of them. There's not much going on in those. There's also the standard nudity in the slasher. And again, not a lot going on there, but... I mean, it, some of this stuff feels like it's been just shoehorned in or put in to kind of create and make sure that this one falls within that slasher genre. It's going to get slasher fans to watch it because it's so paint-by-numbers in the mechanics of it. Now, I think where it shines are... It's really in some of the characters. I think the story is pretty decent, I mean, I think we have a pretty good lead in this one. She's, I called her a dollar store knockoff Linda Blair, but I mean, she does a decent job in this. Uh, it's nothing special. There's another character that I really liked. I think, it, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on this. You're going to have to forgive me here. I am fighting through a stomach bug and kind of blanking on the name. I'm kind of in a daze here, but I think it's Heidi is the, uh, you know, the grad assistant's assistant or aide or whatever yeah so she i liked her a lot in this one and i did like the um the grad assistant who does the you know psychology experiments but honestly here we don't have a whole lot of time for characters to shine and usually when they do you know they don't have long left to live it's kind of standard slasher with nothing really remarkable about it i think the plot's pretty decent I mean, the twist is 
I guess I didn't see it coming, but looking back, you could probably piece together a lot of things that would make sense. I kind of forgot about a thread early on that, yeah, I guess if I would have remembered, maybe I could have figured out where it was going, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's just not, it's just not great, but um, there are some interesting couple little facts here before I end this review. It's just such a, it's just such a straightforward slasher that I don't have a whole lot to say about it. And maybe this is a little bit what happened, that um, English director Peter Crane was originally on this film. When he was fired, they had to turn to TV director Larry Stort to take over the reins. And another interesting thing is that they, um, actually the university that they're filming at is SMU or Southern Methodist down in Dallas, Texas. So I thought that was pretty interesting that you, I don't think we all honestly get a lot of, if we're getting a look at a college campus, we don't necessarily get, (laughs) we don't necessarily get to find out what it is. So I don't know where I'm going with that, but. Another cool thing is, yeah, I do want to say, though, at the beginning of this film, I liked it a lot better before they get to the mall and are doing this kind of pledge prank. I really did like the opening in the university better because, yes, it is set in a sorority house for part of its runtime. Nothing really happens at the sorority house, though, so I wouldn't lump this in any of those types of sorority movies or anything like that. I think on this one, I want to go ahead and give it a round of six and say, you know, get to it if you have the time, but it's really not anything special. There are some cool moments in it. Some character moments are all right in it, but it's nothing to write home about. It's nothing that you're going to probably remember. I'm probably, I'm already forgetting details and I'm probably going to forget even more as the year goes along. But That is my watch list roulette for The Initiation from 1984. Well, that's going to close out the show. As always, you can head on over to Twitter at Screaming Ages to follow the podcast or the Facebook group Screaming Through the Ages, a horror movie history podcast. You can also send an email to ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. As far as what I have planned next, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to I'm going to chuck this one up to the the haziness, the uh, stomach virus, but I don't really know where I want to go next yet. I've been tossing a couple ideas around, so once I feel better, maybe I'll be able to make an informed decision and figure out where I want to go next with the next episode, but until then, it's going to remain a mystery. Not sure when other Episodes are going to drop around this, but I will say that I did have, or will have a couple of appearances on Phantom Galaxy as part of doing a spoiler review of Scream 6, and I also was on there for some other parts that I'm not sure when those will be out, but when you're listening to this, those might be out, they might not, I will link those in the show notes if they are out, but I had fun going over there with Nathan and talking about Scream 6. The day after I saw it, I was a little late to the game, but there was also a non-spoiler review done closer to the release date of Scream 6 by Nathan and Greg Bench. So definitely check that out. I'm excited to hear that one. And 
in other big news, Horror Movie Podcast is back, or will be back shortly, I am told. Pastor Matt Rawlings, who has been a guest on this show and from Father and Son Watch Horror, has revived Horror Movie Podcast from the dead. I'm not going to get into too many details right now, but expect that to be back in the near future if it's not already when you're hearing this. With all that being said, keep your eyes on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly horror movie history lesson. <laughs>